0: Hey everyone as most of you know i attended the teach better 22 conference last october in akron ohio now as i said before it really was a fantastic event both from the learning perspective but also from the networking perspective i finally got to meet so many members of the teach better team that i had only known virtually either through zoom or through social media so i loved that part of it but another surprising part was participating in Podcast Row, where so many of the Teach Better Podcast Network podcasters were set up doing interviews with various speakers at the conference, but also conference participants. That part was really fun as well. So what I've got for you today is part two. This is two of three bonus episodes uh, from the conference. Now, today's episode features conversations with Megan Baldiff, uh, Kevin Butler, Uh, Trey Gamage, and my good friend Eric Francis. So again, I'll have one more bonus episode from the Teach Better conference probably out in January, but I hope you enjoy these conversations uh, from the conference back in October. Alright, I'm here with Megan Bolduff. She is a English teacher from Fairfax, Virginia. Uh, Megan, good to see you.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, we uh, chatted last night at The Social and you had mentioned to me that uh, you were doing a lot of work in grading. And of course, that's an area that I speak a lot about. So I was interested in your story about just the evolution of grading. You did some sessions here. So let's yeah. talk first about your work and what got you interested in the idea of uh, addressing your assessment and grading practices in your classroom uh, and then how that's evolving and we'll talk a little bit more about your sessions here at Teach Better.
1: Sounds great. Um, yeah, I started on this journey toward grading years ago without even realizing that it was sort of an official journey toward more equitable grading practices. I looked around at co-workers who were taking points off here and there for late homework and I thought, well it just doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. And then I started to take a look at the way that I was assessing classwork. And I thought, well, I probably should not be grading it if it's practice. And then I took a hard look at my rubrics and thought, well, there's pieces on here that aren't really about content and Mm -hmm. things that aren't quite clear to kids. And what does it mean when they master this? And I, I began the journey before I realized I was on it. And then really right around 2020 when schools shut down is when i really ramped up my efforts in making my grading practices more equitable more fair to to kids and all of the experiences that they have outside of the classroom yeah
0: what has been the um let's start with this what has been something about shifting your grading practices that actually went more smoothly or went more quickly than you had anticipated we'll get to the other end of the spectrum after that but is there anything that you experienced that that uh went a little more smoothly than you thought you may have anticipated disaster or may have anticipated something and is there any so, something small medium or large that I, went really I well i don't
1: know that i've been doing it in a sort of normal enough school year okay. to be able to answer well, that fair. because okay. i started it during covid when my school system had really moved to providing a lot more grace as far as grading. um, They cut back the requirements for grading in terms of the number of grades teachers were supposed to have, and so I I was able to have a lot more freedom with it. Um, Mm -hmm. I think a big piece for me just generally was when I realized where I was on my journey, I went to my administrator and I was not automatically shut down. I I sort of feared that that would be the automatic, Mm -hmm. you can't do this. Um, Instead, I got the response of this is gonna be really hard, And the school's not ready for this change yet. Mm. And I understood that. I I did not anticipate the whole school shifting to it. And I I took that little nugget of the school's not ready and this is going to be really hard. And thought to myself, well, my principal didn't say no.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's always a good sign, right? Principal didn't say
1: no. So I can can start trying things. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's really where I've been because the 2021 school year was all virtual. And then... We were back in so the So let's classroom. put it this
0: way. What's the first thing you changed or tried?
1: The first thing I, I tried, and I did this before the pandemic, was I just stopped taking points off for late work. Okay. And that was such an easy change, even though my school had an expectation that if it's late, you have a, you're following the policy. I didn't have a student complain. I didn't have a parent say, oh, you didn't follow the policy on that. I just quietly stopped taking points off for late work.
0: And, and how did the students react to that?
1: There was a lot of shock. Okay. We, you, so you, you're not going to, it's not going to be marked late? No, please just turn the work in so I can see what you're learning. Right. And it took a really long time for them to realize that, no, I really was going to take it, and I was going to take it at full credit. Right. Whenever you did it, because I could still then give you feedback on hey, you've done this reflection and it's four weeks later and we're finished with that unit. But yeah. I can see where your thinking was, here's where I'm going to challenge you next. Mm-hmm.
0: Did you have, uh, there's this mythological when you stop taking points off or deducting for late work. There is this fear mongering that occurs where, well, then the kids are not going to ever turn it in and you're going to have this flood of assignments four months Did that ever happen to you? Like as en masse? So I,
1: I, I did get the flood of assignments when they realized that I would still take it, and the grade in the grade book would change from the missing mark to an actual grade. But where normally students might have said, forget it, the grade book program automatically gave me 50%, I'm not going to bother, when they realized I would still take it, and without any deduction, I got more students turning work in. More students who went, oh, well, I know that it's really late, but if you don't mind... I know I don't mind. Please give me the work and let me see what you're doing.
0: That's so interesting that, that the fear is kids are going to be so cynical. They're not going to turn. And yet what you were seeing was a level of optimism that emerged from your students saying, hey, I can get full value for my learning even if it is late, and you sending the message and putting the focus on on the learning as opposed to mm-hmm. the timeliness of it. And I know there's always individual students that we might have more challenge with in terms of their circumstances, etc. But the, uh, the way that they turned work in sounds very, very productive and promising for sure. Okay, what's been the toughest part of the change?
1: The toughest part is probably what I'm in right now, because now that we're back in the classroom, and I'm running with this idea of going as gradeless as I can, a lot of students keep asking, well, but what's my grade? How -hmm. come there's not a grade yet? And I have to keep having these individual conversations about the intent of of what's in the grade book is not that it's every little thing you've turned in, but that it really should show mastery of the skills for my content. And right now you haven't mastered anything. And so there's not a grade in there yet. And so they see me collecting work and they see me tracking it, but they want to know why is there no grade? How many points is this worth? And so just getting that shift now that they're all back in more of a normal classroom setting, shifting away from traditional grading practices that they're used to is is difficult. And so I'm and I anticipated I would need to have these conversations more. I just hoped I could milk it a little bit more into the school year before I had to have them. Um, and I, I think, though, that that's, that's where my next step needs to be is more information for the students, definitely information for the families, and being proactive about it before the end of our first quarter. So
0: what is it that you will tell them? How will you communicate with families and students? Like what would be some of the most important talking points that you'll sort of try to emphasize with them?
1: So when I introduced the school year, I did introduce it to my students that I was really going to search for their mastery of the content versus collecting points and all of these things. And I, I remember making this comment to each of my classes and seeing kids nodding their heads. They, they understood that idea of my grade should be based on how I've mastered the content. Mm-hmm. So if, I think it's just a reminder to them of the grade book right now really is just tracking your work so that... If we see a pattern of missed materials, and then you don't do well, then that practice might have been part of the reason why you now need to retake, because you didn't do as well, because you didn't take advantage of the practice. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: For the parents, I know, and the community, I know I'm going to have to basically educate them on why this is a better plan for their students than what they anticipated, and what they had been expecting, and what they'd been doing themselves as students. Mm
0: -hmm. Really putting learning at the center, not point accumulation, not not, yep. not grades. And, and grades can be, again, I often say as meaningful or as meaningless as we make them. Mm-hmm. Uh, if grades are a reflection of learning, then we can bring those two things into alignment so that when the student says, how do I get a higher grade, that really is code for how do I do more learning and show you that I know more, right? Because yeah. at the high school level, sometimes it's tough to convince them. I'm not sure I always buy into this expression. It's not about the grade. It's about the learning. But that is true. But you can bring those two things into alignment, I think. And, and mm-hmm. therefore, you don't have to always fight against a system, but you can kind of make those those two things uh, synonymous. So here we are at Teach Better. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this your first Teach Better conference? Yes. Yeah, mine too. Um, interested in just your takeaways, impression? What, 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 what for you has really resonated over the weekend?
1: So I've definitely found myself circling around the same handful of presenters and presentations and a lot of it is about this idea of going gradeless and yeah. changing the way we grade in part because as I said my, my administrator said the, the school's not ready um, and I found that to be true my colleagues know how passionate I am about this and none of them is comfortable yet taking that journey with me yeah. and so to come to teach better and to find people who are like minded who are not just willing to do it but are doing it themselves and are willing to provide support for things where I might end up stuck is really nice to know that even though in my building I'm sort of a a lone wolf on this there are other people that I can find that can provide that support Mm -hmm. even though I'm the only one where I am who's doing it yeah
0: the the expression going gradeless is out there a lot of people use it but it Mm -hmm. means different things in in certain places or to certain people so what does it mean to you
1: I think I really hook onto the less portion of it that I'm I'm not eliminating grades my school system still requires that I have them but I'm I'm going grade less I'm putting fewer things so two
0: words instead of one
1: right right putting fewer things of of weight into the gradebook, right? right? I, I, I said I, I'm using my gradebook as my tracking software right now, and really just focusing on putting the school required formatives and summatives in my gradebook, yeah. so that I will have fewer graded tasks, but will have done a lot of practice and reflection, so that hopefully the scores on those graded tasks are higher because students have had the practice with the skill before they're showing me that they've mastered it.
0: And it's about quality over quantity, right? It's about making sure we have high quality assessments that that yield accurate information, and so we don't need to have a lot of scores or a lot of levels or a lot of results, but we just need the right ones, right? right? Yeah. Right,
1: absolutely. Yeah, good.
0: So any advice for anyone out there listening who says, you know, I'd love to try to grade less or go gradeless or whatever the expression is. If somebody's thinking about that from your perspective, what's the first thing they need to do or think about?
1: So, I sort of have two different approaches to that answer. One, I think it's if it's something that you're interested in, learn from the people who are already doing it so that you don't feel like you're going it alone. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether that be listening to things like this podcast, reading what's out there, going to find blogs, finding other teachers maybe in your building or your system who are doing it Mm -hmm. and then the other one is just start with some of those small steps. Think about those ways that your, your current grading practices may not be entirely fair for all students. And what I mean by that is thinking about The kind of grace we were giving during the pandemic where we didn't know what a kid's situation was those things are still all in play they're just back physically in your classrooms and so if you can eliminate the late work if you or the the late work deduction if you can stop grading homework if you can provide more opportunities for feedback while kids are working in class Those are all little tiny moves that you can make that are going to start to reflect in grades that are more accurate of student learning.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, you're speaking my language here, Megan. You know uh, how passionate I am about about Mm -hmm. this topic as well. Okay, let's finish up. You're from Fairfax, Virginia. We mentioned that. What is the best part of living in Fairfax, Virginia?
1: One of the best parts of living in Fairfax, Virginia is its proximity to Washington, D.C. and all of the monuments and all of the parks and all of these things that are completely free to access. Yeah, um, So many opportunities for learning. My children love the zoo. It's one of the few zoos in the country that I know of that's completely free. Wow. So you can wander in and see anything you want. The collections at the different Smithsonian museums are just absolutely amazing. Yeah.
0: And, and all right again, there on your doorstep. And it's all free. <laughs> so you
1: can go in and spend a day and learn so much about so much
0: yeah. for yeah. nothing. For nothing. For free. Absolutely. Well, Megan, great to meet you. Uh, good luck on your, uh, your gradeless journey and your working you. and your grading practices. Uh, well, thanks thank for doing this. thank you so
1: much this. for having me.
0: All right. Here with Kevin Butler, a uh, teacher at a K6 school in West Hollywood uh, from Sherman Oaks, California, here at Teach Better Conference, you presented a session called Lights, Cameras, teach and that's all about engagement culture and uh, helping students become connected uh, in school so tell me a little bit about that session and what some of the big takeaways were from that session
3: yeah so it's um like a playoff of hollywood teaching in hollywood Mm -hmm. so that that lights cameras instead of action teach and it's really just about the power of how to engage students especially after COVID, like having kids come back in the classroom and you know I, i talk about how kids are right now used to instant gratification Um, Like You can go on Amazon and get something. In L.A., you can actually get it in. They have two-hour delivery. So it's like, it's truly... (laughs) The rest of
0: us are envious of that.
3: (laughs) And they were home for two years. So this idea of just being entertained all the time, whether it's their device, whether it's the TV, Um, but how do we bring that into the classroom? But how do we bring it in so that we are not overworking ourselves? So just like simple things to do. Um, the culture part i talk a little bit about the difference between climate and classroom culture how do we kind of foster that in our own classroom and then really the idea of relationships and how important those are i think through covid that was one of the the big takeaways Mm -hmm. was those in-person interactions and when they were taken away from us it was like whoa how do i do this without actually physically being with people and not just our students but the teachers that we work with the school staff uh, parents, administrators, so, so all of that.
0: I know uh, in so many places I go, teachers are either real or perceived. They are seeing that sort of post pandemic. I don't know that we're completely post pandemic, but you know what I mean. They are noticing uh, the lack of engagement or a level of apathy towards school that, from their perspective, uh, is unprecedented. How do, we, how do we address that? What is the answer to that? I mean, I know it's the students aren't a monolith, and we've got different strategies for different kids, but generally speaking, what, what do you think the secret or the answer, not that there's a silver bullet, but what is the answer to how we bring that engagement back to maybe where it was?
3: First tip, I would say you need to know your kids, and that goes to the relationship, back to the relationships. Like, how do you foster those relationships? And then from after you create those relationships, you've got to pull your ideas from things that they're interested in. Um, I talk about in my session um, a lesson that I did called Grammar Craft, Mm. because when the kids came back that first year from COVID they were just obsessed with Minecraft in my class and I didn't know what Minecraft was (laughs) but they were all talking about it and I'm like this is an opportunity to engage them because they were used to playing it at home I can now bring it into the classroom so after we were uh, done with the unit on the different parts of speech uh, I created GrammarCraft, and mm-hmm. they, you know, they thought it was super cool. They thought maybe we were playing a video game, but little did they know we would be using the different parts of speech rather than to build entire like cities and communities. Uh, the real game of Minecraft, we were building sentences using all of the different parts of speech. So they had actually like cut things out and put them together. Um, so little things like that, I think, are so important to just get their attention.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. um, I think the kids were as obsessed with Minecraft as adults were obsessed with TikTok uh, during (laughs) the quarantine was the best thing that ever happened to TikTok. That's for sure. You mentioned earlier the difference between culture and climate. What is the difference from your perspective?
3: My perspective is that climate is how people actually feel in your classroom. Okay. Um, Culture is what are the actions that you're taking to actually get people to feel that way? Mm -hmm. Um, I compare it in my book to like houseplants. I love COVID. I like being became a house plant collector <laughs> and you know you have to create a climate for those plants to thrive so yeah if a plant needs full sun you need to have it in full sun but the culture of it is you need to nurture it every day it's not just right. placing it in the sun and not doing anything with it mm-hmm. you've got to fertilize it you've got to water it you've got to trim it so it's all those things what are the action the actions that you're taking okay to create that, that
0: so climate? climate is a an outcome right. of culture right you build a right. culture you get a climate right. where people right. feel Connected, yep. relationships are strong, and people feel supported. Right. Um, what about any thoughts around, I know that some teachers also have come back sort of out of quarantine, etc. a little sort of disillusioned, disconnected. Any thoughts for you? I know this is not necessarily your area of expertise, but just any thoughts around how do we re-engage with the profession? How do we find our, our energy again after feeling so, you know, many felt disillusioned, disheartened?
3: Yeah. Um, uh, how do
0: we get back to that? I think it's super important that we get back to
3: it i think we we wanted to get back to it so so badly when we were in COVID, and then we got back to school and we were just overwhelmed and it's like who has time to you know eat lunch in the lunchroom because there's 500 other things i need to do i need to call parents i need to make copies you know friday happy hours we're exhausted by the end of the week Mm -hmm. but i think we really just have to you know there are a lot of books and a lot of people who say just like shut your door and do your thing My advice is the opposite. You've got to open that classroom door. Um, Not everybody's going to walk in it, but when it's open, people might peer in. You might, like, see a face that you haven't seen before. Mm -hmm. Um, Something I tell people, like... Challenge yourself one day a week to walk down a hallway in your school that you normally don't walk on. Like, I will, I teach on the fourth floor, and it's very easy for me to take the elevator from the parking garage up to the fourth floor and never have to leave the fourth floor. Right. Um, but just walk down a hallway, and it's it sounds simple, but you're going to bump into somebody, and you need to, like, be aware of them and you need to like smile at least smile <laughs> yeah say hello um and i think it's little things like that mm-hmm. we have to spark those relationships we right. have to have those conversations because we're all on the same ship we're in different rooms and we're we, we're dealing with different things right but we're all in this together
0: yeah okay so we're at teach better of course the conference and uh, you were a presenter and our presenter here uh but my question to you just Big impressions, big takeaways from the conference. What 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 are what are some of the biggest things that you've taken from from the weekend?
3: I was here in two thousand nineteen. Oh, you were yes. okay. Um, and I fell in love with Teach Better. Okay. Um, I don't get paid to say this. It's yeah. There is a level, and I literally was just texting with some friends that I speak at with some other conferences. There's just a level of authenticity here. Yeah. That you don't get in all educational okay. conferences. It's not a huge conference, so there's not thousands of people that you're shuffling through. Right. Um, there's a lot of meeting people that you interact with because you know they use the word teach better family because there are so many opportunities, whether it's on Twitter through their website to interact with people as part of this family. So you're you're getting to see people. I haven't I was able to see people I haven't seen for three years because of 2020 and 21 being canceled due to COVID. Yeah. Um, there's just a level of like I said authenticity happiness people are eager to learn um, there's like no attitude there's no drama it's right. just it's just right. a great place to be
0: it feels like the epitome of work hard and play hard right exactly. it's it's a it's a great group and of course so many of us are meeting for the first time right. even though we've been part of the network or part of the team right. um, you, you see people's avatars, and then you meet them face-to-face, and it's like, oh. I, no, I know you, right? <laughs> I, know, I think I know you, but you're not wearing the outfit I've been looking at on Twitter for, for the last three right. years or, or whatever it right. is. And so. even the
3: networking opportunities right. that they have, they kick it off with a networking event, yeah. and then every night throughout the conference, yeah. there's you're just out with people. That's which, right. And again, because it's not super huge, you have those opportunities to connect with people.
0: Absolutely. And, and it seems, you know, we've had two of those so far. And obviously night two, people are a little more connected. They have a little bit of a rapport. Right. And all of that continues to build as right. we go along. Um, you are, of course, from Sherman Oaks, California. Yes. So I want to ask you by finishing up, what's the best part about living in Sherman Oaks, California?
3: There's a lot of great things, uh, but it's the weather. The weather is incredible. Yeah. It's pretty much 80 degrees and sunny every day. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad that I'm in Ohio right now because it's gorgeous, because the leaves are all changing. Like these are things that you take. I'm from New York, so
0: uh
3: but I've been in California for almost a decade. I um, mean, you miss the fall like that. When people ask me, do you miss the East Coast, I say yes because of this time of the year. So this was really yeah. a really nice treat to be here during that time. But. You miss
0: it, but not enough to move back. No, no. <laughs> Even yesterday when
3: I got into my car after leaving the networking event, I'm like, I can never live in the cold weather again. Yeah, there.
0: <laughs> yeah. There's there's the traffic. There's all the other things that come along with Southern California, right. but there's the weather and that's there's no... no, no uh, disillusion about why people live there exactly. and love to live there and probably never leave right yeah okay. kevin thanks so much for doing this appreciate it thank you here now with uh, trey gamage and listeners you may remember trey from the summer of 2021 john and jessica hannigan and trey were on for a summer series uh talking SEL. Uh, trey good to see you again my friend
2: likewise thanks for having me I always love listening and glad to be back
0: yeah it's great to see you uh first let's start with your sessions here at the conference you did two sessions uh W- what were one of the sessions you did
2: yeah so the first one is relationships and communications three strategies for success at work and home and okay. this is actually my this is my bread and butter from my consulting perspective okay. this okay. is what i deliver to schools okay. when i'm hired for in service and things this is what i typically do but it's four hours so we condensed that to 50 minutes and um it was good it was well received and you know i've taught this class with middle school high school college Educators and professionals, so it's a very versatile session that's focused on relationships and communication. So we looked at three strategies that you can use to improve relationships, um, and at the end of the session, we still had about 10 minutes to talk about direct application to the classroom. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that's always important to me. And providing knowledge or information is only powerful if you have the opportunity to apply it. And so um, I can speak whatever needs to be spoken, but if you're not able to use this in your classroom, it doesn't matter. Right. So the best part for me was the fact that we had time at the end of our session for them to ask more specific questions to clarify how they can roll something like this in their classroom or utilize it effectively.
0: Big takeaways from that session? What are those strategies?
2: The big takeaways one, uh, there's two power questions that you can ask to understand anybody's communication style. I call them power questions. One, are you direct or indirect? Or are you open or guarded? You can remember those two questions. I've got a wheel I can show you, and it'll tell you four primary styles and where that person falls. This is, again, personally or professionally. Yeah. Those two questions will help set you up for success in any conversation okay. you go into. The second takeaway is that there's tension in every relationship, right, right. Everybody yeah. with, with whatever yeah. you want it to be. But oftentimes, it's, it's there's two reasons that that tension comes from i'm moving too fast and you're moving too slow or i'm focused on the people and you're focused on the task and so i'm giving folks strategies to understand okay if if we have a difference in conflict we got to find out where that is and what's a simple strategy yeah. if i know that you're a certain communication style i need to slow down when we talk yeah. i need to write down the talking points i need to not beat around the bush and so there's minute changes that we can make that make a drastic difference and so they're simple to use easy to remember and that's what we need for teachers right now
0: and that level of awareness allows us to communicate more exactly. clearly and allows us to build that rapport 100%. and relationship and understand each yep. other right we're,
2: we're people before we're educators right Kids are people, be, or the students are kids before they're students, so I, I, I like to teach to the person first, right. um, and that's a concept that I learned from psychology, because too often we, we put the, the status or the situation or whatever label first and, and don't think about the person. So we already have tremendous assets, and I, I'm always a believer that, hey, I'm not I'm not here teaching you anything new. I'm teaching you how to be intentional about what you know, right. um, and that's the main thing there. Fantastic. Oh, and the other
0: session you presented?
2: The other session was actually uh, very similar but condensed even more. So again, four hours, this was 20 minutes for the second session. So it was still relationships and communication. And it was actually kind of a test to see, can I get this information across in in this short amount of time? So we still covered those same bullet points. And um, I was talking really fast. So I need to hear myself, need to slow down now as well. But it was good. We had a a, a nice variety. And we were still able to talk about the application. We didn't have as much time to do, um, in the first session, you were able to get up and interact and and actually do those communication styles and figure out tension in real time. But this one, we just had to talk through it. Um, But it was still very hopeful for me because they – felt like they were energized from it and sometimes yeah. those 20 minute sessions are, are just what you're looking for it's just an energizer you got your download your workbook you got some quick tips go yeah and that's exactly what it designed fantastic mm-hmm. yeah uh
0: are there any combinations that are particularly tense or where mm. you have to be very aware of yeah. each other because there is that sort of almost like a polar opposite
2: <laughs> yeah so i um that's a good question that's a great question there's four styles and just briefly the D style is for dominance and that's dominance towards solving problems Okay. so these people are going to be more assertive yeah. they're going to be more risk taking they're going to be more direct Right. I'm an I style which is um, I'm an open book I'm very happy I'm very optimistic I'm very enthusiastic the S style is about steadiness they are they don't want to ruffle the feathers right. those folks are not, they don't want conflict and your C style is um, very conscientious rules over results yeah. so the C in the eye, yeah. Those are opposite. <laughs> I've been telling a story about the administrator that we butted heads with because I am, I'm just happy-go-lucky all yeah. day long, and they're trying to doubt all these eyes and crossing the T's, and it's just I'm fast, she's slow. I'm people focused, she's task focused, and we just, we just butt heads. Yeah. So some yeah. things that I had to do was just slow down, like try to take 20 minutes to prep for a meeting take 10 minutes and do nothing before a meeting just calm yourself down for a moment and then when I'm prepping prepare an agenda they want to know this and this and that anticipate what questions are going to be asked give visual evidence so there's these are like small things that may take me an extra hour to prep but I'd rather have that than um, getting in my emotions when we're having you know an administrative meeting so that C and the I are opposite and then the D The D is fast-paced and task-oriented. The S is slow-paced and and, um, people-oriented. So the D is going to be getting tired of the S being so (laughs) indecisive. And so that's the two opposites. That's where it all comes together. That's where it comes together. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Now, um, this is your first Teach Better conference, Mm -hmm. as it is mine. Um, Just wondering about... Overall impressions, yeah. big takeaways, what are your thoughts on the conference?
2: It's actually surreal. I, I um I'm haven't figured out the like how to wrap this all the way up yet, but I'm calling this like a metaverse experience. Okay. I, I don't I've not used the metaverse, I haven't been in the metaverse per se, but we're at the Podcasters Network. I know you. Yeah, we've we've done episode five. Never seen you. Never met face to face. Life. That's right. Insane for everybody here. So there's so many people like the blog team. I met five people on the blog team that make sure I look good when we post the blog. <laughs> it's like wow, this is really happening right here. Like Ray, Ray, you're a real person. It's yeah. like I've been seeing the hologram the whole time, and and maybe that's the opposite. But like now being here. It's like we're actually in the metaverse and you're getting, we're operating as our avatars. Yeah. And then after these two days, we're going back home to yeah. be in our regular world, even yeah. though that's the opposite. So that's been the thing to me, just getting to touch people and, and yeah, getting to touch people, see people, communicate, you know, share the vibes. And it's, I think what's really cool. Same with high school friends and stuff. You know, you might not see or talk to each other for years, but whenever you come back together, you're still on the same page. And so the energy that I felt from you and some of the other folks that I've already known before is the same energy that I'm receiving while I'm here. And so I'm excited. I think the world is excited to get back to conferences just to be able to fellowship. You know, and, and, right. and I wasn't sure what to expect. Is it awkward? How do you interact or network or whatever? It's so natural, yeah. you know, with everything. And everybody's of a common mind, a common heart. And I think that speaks to the community of what Teach Better has built. And ah. I, I love being a part of every team that I'm on. And, um, you know, this is so worth it. I'll definitely be back.
0: Yeah, fantastic. What's next for you, Trey? What's, what What are you working on? Uh, yeah. Give me a chance to promote something. Just tell listeners uh, what's happening for uh, you.
2: Of course, we have Every Decision Counts, Eight Lessons I Wish They Taught Me in School is available on my website, okay. SEO Educator. Um, as well as the podcast the Dash podcast we're still dropping new episodes after 225 now um, episodes and and want to keep keep going so there's a few things that I'm working on and, and one of them is primarily taking a lot of the core offerings that I've had emotional intelligence relationships and communication and offering those in a digital format. So over the past five years, we've been offering these in-person to, to different schools, um, mostly in the south southeast. Now I'm putting those on online platforms and, and looking at gearing that up to provide more solutions for, yeah. for schools and individuals who want to practice adult right. SEL. So that's at SELeducators.com as well. We've got a couple tabs for like in-person service, but then there's a course tab as well yeah. that has relationships and communication with a free webinar as well as a Two-hour debrief session that that comes with a, a disc assessment as well. Yeah,
0: you are a busy man. That's for <laughs> sure. <laughs> you, trying to. yeah, some you, you you don't sleep much, do you? With all that on the on uh, the go.
2: We were talking about uh, routines with Dr. Martinez, and um, I've got a formula if I can, I can share. Uh, yeah, a formula. all right. We Tell us your secret. Structure. Yeah. Uh, that's I have a few contracts that keep me structured. Um, planning. So I, I plan quarterly, monthly, weekly, and daily. Okay. Yeah multiply by pressure i like pressure uh, okay this is feel, this, this is for me where I, I feel like i thrive okay when there's pressure on if i need accountability by myself i'm not accountable but if i tell you what i told you before the podcast yeah that's accountability for me right so planning, structure, multiply by pressure. That's what equals execution for me. That's the formula that I came up with uh, recently. So I'm loving every moment and I feel very blessed that I get to do what I love every day. And that keeps me energized for sure.
0: Yeah. And you're very good at it. And to have as much as you have on the go, you have to be disciplined. And clearly you are that. Uh, You are from uh, Columbia, South Carolina. So What's the best part of living in uh, Columbia, South Carolina?
2: As a Midwestern man, I cannot deny that the weather has to be (laughs) one of the best parts. I mean, we're in Akron right now, and it's not quite miserable, but it is cold. You can feel it. Yeah, absolutely. We we get about two months of winter in South Carolina. and So it gets kind of crazy because you see kids that will wear sweaters in like August, September, and I'm starting to be one of those people, too, Like just just because I may wear <laughs> sleeves or sweatpants right. through the right. summertime. So the weather, I would say, is definitely, as well as the cost of living. You know, it's, it's not too expensive right. down there. Now, we pay for that in other ways, but I'd rather keep, you know, the the money that we have and, and the dollar stretches kind of far down yeah. there. So I yeah. like it.
0: Well, I will say that uh, South Carolina is the first place I ever had shrimp and mm. grits. And uh, I, I will always have to have shrimp and grits when yes. I head to the South, especially. And yes. I've recently started making it myself, and uh, mm. definitely I will always connect that with South Carolina.
2: My wife's got a great recipe. I Fantastic. See she
0: me <laughs> She'll probably leave out one ingredient right. just so mine's that, not as good. That's how you no, I'm it. just teasing. Uh, <laughs> Trey, great to see you, man. Likewise. Yeah. Thank Cheers. You, joined now with my good friend Eric Francis. Eric, good to see you. Tom, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Great to see you here on uh, at the Teach Better conference. You, of course, are here presenting on Deconstructing Depth of Knowledge, the recent publication, Solution Tree book. Tell us a little bit about the session, what you're doing here at the conference.
4: So what I'm actually calling is Knowing is Half the Battle, which that actually was going to be the original title of ah, the book, okay. um, but they didn't really see it. And I totally get that. So because <laughs> knowing is half the battle. So it's really about the book about how to deconstruct for depth of knowledge. So I want to talk about what the truth of DOK really is is, what it's all about, um, why the DOK wheel is inaccurate, that's huge. And also how DOK, I look at it as the missing link. Is mm-hmm. that everything we have in education, we're always like, okay, what's that thing? There's something missing. I really think DOK is. So it's going to be talking about how DOK is the next step in uh, unpacking and wrapping standards. It's a step we have to do. Talk about how to plan and provide teaching and learning experiences for depth of knowledge. And also, I'm going to do that Let's Make a DOK, where I compare it to uh, TV shows. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm really excited about that. Yeah.
0: How do you how do you make, you know, uh, so many teachers find uh, analyzing standards, unpacking standards, complicated, daunting. And then you add in the question of depth of knowledge. So how do What's the the simplest yet, without compromising, how do we explain depth of knowledge to teachers so it's not so overwhelming or intimidating to them?
4: You know, you got to ask yourself two questions. When you look at your standard, when you look at your curricular activity, when you look at your assessment item, ask these questions. What exactly and how deeply? What exactly must the students learn? That's the noun that names the concept or content that you'll be teaching and they'll be learning. How deeply? is basically how deeply they have to understand and use the knowledge and thinking or learning that they've developed. Mm. So that involves basically, like I said, it's a next step in unpacking and wrapping standards. We have to be real. There's a lot of us who understand what that involves. But unfortunately, a lot of our teachers are taking that great method by Larry Ainsworth you circle the verbs, you underline the nouns. That's how the teachers, unfortunately, see it. When I talk to teachers, I say, We're unpacking and wrapping the standards. They give me this collective sigh great, I'm circling verbs and I'm underlining nouns. I said, Do you understand what you're supposed to do with that? They said, No. What I teach people is that you circle the verbs, you underline the nouns. That's the first step. Then you take a highlighter and I want you to highlight everything that comes after that first verb. So if I said basically something like determine the idea and theme and analyze this development over the course of a text, that's an actual standard. You circle your verbs, develop, analyze, you circle basically, you underline your nouns, theme, that's what I'm teaching. The next step would be take your highlighter and highlight everything that comes after develop. So what exactly am I, are they developing? Mm-hmm. Theme, you know, basically determining theme. How deeply of a text and analyze this development over the course of text. Now wait a minute. There's another verb in that yellow area. That means there's two objectives. Okay, right. so first they're going to determine a central idea and theme, and then they're going to analyze the development of the central idea and theme over the right. course of the text. So there's two objectives you have to achieve in that to achieve that standard. Mm-hmm. You also then have to determine what their DOK level is because the determine essential idea or theme would be probably be like a DOK two, unless it's implicit, it might be a three, because you have to stop to explain your answer with examples. But when I'm analyzing what exactly the theme, how deeply its development over the course of the text, now I'm at a DOK three because I'm examining, explaining with evidence. So that's the simplest thing that yeah. really gives you the purpose that you're not just sitting there circling verbs and underlining nouns. It's mm-hmm. a second grade activity. right? You're circling your verb, you're underlining the noun, then highlight everything to that end mark, and then ask yourself, what exactly are they thinking about, and how deeply do they have to understand, use their knowledge and thinking or learning?
0: Right. Now, you have, of course, as I know all too well, you've been on a crusade about the DOK wheel, um, and I know that you have said to me privately that you've seen a resurgence in the DOK wheel. So, two things. Um what is concerning about the DOK wheel? Why is it problematic? And secondly, what do you think why what do you think this res, where is this resurgence coming from? Why are you seeing it more? And what do we need to do to help people understand how inappropriate that DOK wheel is even though it's so prominent, it's out there. Um, what do we do about that? So what's the crusade all about, Eric?
4: Well, what's let's flip the question. Okay? okay, why are we seeing a resurgence of the DOK wheel because what we're seeing is a return to rigor. Yeah. That and it's really unfortunate because Unfortunately, with education, we do a lot of things in silos, and we shouldn't be siloing. Mm-hmm. And what you and I probably have experienced, because you and I are both in the world of academic rigor, right. is that the instructional focus of teaching and learning has been lately is social emotional learning. Mm-hmm. It's been treated that academic rigor is this over here, and social emotional learning is this over here, right. and these two shall not cross paths. Mm-hmm. So, like for example, when you and I are probably working during the pandemic, a lot of us were saying they saying to people. We're not focusing on academic rigor right now. We're focusing on social-emotional learning. Mm -hmm. I'm still getting that. You're probably still getting that. We're focusing on social-emotional learning. We're focusing on on cultural responsibility. Great things to focus on, but don't leave rigor out. Mm -hmm. It all interconnects. What I'm seeing lately is that people are saying, we're still focusing on social-emotional learning, which is great, and we're still focusing on cultural responsibility, which is great, but then they cover their mouths and kind of go whisper and go, yeah, but we realize we got to teach these kids again, okay? Yeah. So that rigor focus is coming back. So now I'm starting to see, okay, what's rigor? Okay, the DOK wheel. And we were all given that as part of our training on the Common Core Standards. Here's the problem. The DOK wheel is completely inaccurate. It's been refuted by Dr. Webb, who did not create it. He does not endorse it. I know there's a citation at the bottom of the poster that says, Dr. Norman Webb, Mm -hmm. he didn't create it. It also has a link there that will take you to a dead link because that's not what... The web alignment tool was and that's the other thing people don't understand dok was never meant to be an instruction not the model it was a criterion for alignment studies you take your standards you take your assessments and you see how aligned they are that's how the dok will came about Mm -hmm. because florida was one of the first states to do their alignment studies with dok instead of blooms well no one knew what dok was and you know us educators we got to have our our images, our double bubbles, our right. thinking maps, right. our pyramids. Right. Right. So a teacher innocently uploaded the DOK wheel to the internet and said, this is depth of knowledge. It's actually derived upon by the uh, Bloom's wheel, which is from Dr. Barbara Clark in her book.
0: Yeah.
4: When we went Common Core, and I'm going to say the state because now I have the fewer evidence of it.
0: Yeah.
4: New York State was behind all the curriculum and training behind the Common Core. They were behind the development of the trainings on DOK. Someone did a Google search found that wheel, made the poster, put the citation at the bottom, and said, this is D.O.K. without verifying it. There was also a video came out. I found this out as well. Karen Hess, who was behind Cognitive Rigor, how she uh, superimposed blooms and webs, she wrote the script for the video. New York State said, look at the video we created. She said, you put the D.O.K. wheel in there. That's not accurate. You can't put this video out. Well, it was too late. Oh, no. Okay? Yeah. So the wheel went out. So I've known for years that New York State was behind it. And you can't fault them. It's, that, yeah. you know, it's just they were not responsible in checking things out. And I knew 99% of this. And I've been telling this story for 99% that New York State was behind it. Now I'm 100% because I'm going to tell you what happened to me this summer. This summer I had the privilege to present at a keynote on what exactly depth of knowledge is at UConn for Joe Renzulli's uh, Comfort tube. And when I present on DOK and the history of DOK, I talk about where it came from. It actually arose out of the 1980s and then actually came out from the 1990s. And that one went Common Core. New York State was one of the leaders behind it. They yeah. put the poster out there. Yeah. And I knew that story for 99%. And I was doing this virtually. And then someone in the chat box said, I want you to know that New York State realized this mistake. And we tried to send Karen Hess out into the field and retrain everybody on what depth of knowledge is. So they knew the D.O.K. wheel was inaccurate yeah. and they tried to fix it. That, that's a huge thing to me. I think I've joked with you and said, oh, my gosh, I know who shot John Kennedy. <laughs> I mean, that's that's kind of what <laughs> it right, is. You know, right. I, I have the, now the secret. I'm telling you right now, and this is my big concern. This is my crusade is we need to move forward it's not what depth of knowledge has been it's what depth of knowledge is and what it could be and that's right. partly why i wrote my book is as you know right. is that i see it as the missing link the model right. for the future right. don't look at it as a taxonomy look at it as four different ways students can understand use their learning stop saying scaffold because it's not a taxonomy say basically tier because when you say scaffold you think you got to start low to go high right with tiering, you start at the deepest level so from standards-based perspective Start with the standard. Then tier to where the students are. Find their strengths, but don't stop at that tier. Build upon their strengths so they can rise to reach and go beyond what I call that DLK bar set by the standard. So the big message to get out there, the DLK wheel is inaccurate. I got the proof and evidence <laughs> of it, okay? It's like that clip in a Zapruder film yeah, that I did yeah, you know. No. All and, sorts of references. And I'm there, really yeah. glad that you gave me yeah. this opportunity to yeah. get it out there because yeah, sure. this is education malpractice. Yeah. And this is true evidence. Structurally,
0: what is it about the wheel? It's not that it's in a circle, but just what is it structurally about how it's constructed? There's
4: verbs in the wheel. Verbs, right, Okay. Right depth of knowledge is not about what's the no. w- about the
0: verb no, that's it's, blooms the right, verbs the verbs blooms. are blooms not right. not and, yeah, depth depth okay.
4: of knowledge is about the context right so let's talk about deeper learning a lot of people think deeper learning is the deeper level of thinking the deeper learning no verbs are abstract and have multiple meanings that's why when you look at a bloom's taxonomy you see like 50 verbs underneath each level and then yeah. you look let's say for okay the standard says explain. Well, where's explaining blooms? Oh gosh, it's under remember, understand, analyze, evaluate. So mm-hmm. what exactly am I explaining? Yeah. How deeply do I have to explain it? That's depth of knowledge. Right, right. That's the big problem. You want to use the wheel to do thinking, that's fine. Yeah. That's not depth of knowledge. Right. It's also a shift because you're combating sixty years of education where people have been looking at the cognitive action, because right. that's when Bloom's taxonomy was developed. Right you're combating 30 to 40 years of standards-based learning where the focus has been on the cognition Mm -hmm. or the performance, which is the verb and the noun. With depth of knowledge and deeper learning, it's contextual, so I'll give you four standards, and no, we're short for time, I wanna give you four (laughs) standards, okay? (laughs) Okay. If I said, identify the literary elements in a text, identify generally categorized, lower level blooms, doesn't matter, what exactly am I identifying? Literary elements, how deeply? Of a text, D-O-K-1. Now I'm going to say identify how literary devices are used by a text or an author. That's a DOK2. If I just said identify literary devices in a text, DOK1, answer correctly. How they're used by a text or an author, that's a DOK2 because now you have to establish and explain with examples from the text. If I said identify the effect of the literary devices used by the text or by the author, now it's a DOK3 three, because now you have to provide evidence of the effect that it creates. Mm -hmm. That's why I keep on saying, when you're unwrapping unpacking standards, or let's call them deconstructing standards for depth of knowledge, Mm -hmm. circle your verb, underline your nouns, look at that first verb, put it aside, great, you know where it's in blooms, highlight everything that comes after it to the end mark what exactly must students learn that's what you underlined how deeply it's all the other words and phrases
0: yeah and again listeners this is really just about alignment it's about as eric said earlier this is about making sure that our assessments match the appropriate depth of thinking and depth of knowledge that the standards are demanding of the students so that we truly can say that we're helping students reach high levels of academic rigor and academic performance for sure. Now Eric, you and I have been to a lot of conferences. This is your first Teach Better conference, my first Teach Better conference. Impressions so far on day one?
4: I think it's great, I think it's great to hear what uh, the voice of two hundred eighty characters sound like <laughs> because we all know each other on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. And Social media, yeah, avatars. We, we, we've never met in person, yeah. so it's like we look at each other and we, we recognize well, we've our met, faces. We've met you and I per, know each yeah, other we for know each a long that's, time. That's, that's right. Yeah. You know, but I mean, that's By other people for sure. Yeah, other yeah. people. Like you know, you're yeah. Eric Francis, you're so and so, and that's the great thing is that you know everybody is like excited to meet everybody. Everybody's a fan mm-hmm. of everybody. Mm-hmm. It's it's like. We're all learning from each other. We're yeah. all sharing with each other. I mean, I'm having a great time. I know yeah. you're having a great time. I'm having a great time. We're all we're having have. a great time. We're all time. having a great time, for so. sure. All
0: right, two more things. Uh, what's what's coming up for you? Any books, book projects coming up? What are you working on right now?
4: Well, I'm working on my next book. It's okay. going to be the sequel to my first book. Now, that's a good question, but I'm going to do a Solution Tree this okay. time. Okay. Um, we talk about questions. We talk about questioning. What I'm going to be talking about is that what distinguishes questioning from inquiry and how you can create those good questions or phrase and pose those good questions right. to engage in and um, experience inquiry. And eventually I'm going to write a standards-based book. I want to write a book about what standards are, or mm-hmm. what they've become, and what they could be. Yeah. Um, mostly out there doing PD, collaborating with great people like you, yeah. and you know, hopefully you know, getting to work closely with people like you and other people awesome. out there. And, uh You know, I'm hoping that, you know, a lot of professional development initiatives I'm working on right now are going to not be a one and done. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be a rock show. It's going to be a relationship where, you know, trying to tell the schools that, okay, you're probably not going to see transformative turnaround in the first year. And that's okay. PD
0: takes time. It takes time to make that change. Mm -hmm. So so that's kind of what I'm kind of what I'm doing yeah know? fantastic I know you've got your session coming up uh, in the conference and I'm sure people are going to learn a ton from that uh, Eric you are of course from Scottsdale Arizona so tell me as we finish up here what is the best part of living in Scottsdale Arizona
4: <laughs> I gotta really think about that uh, no there's just, good parts me. That yeah. the weather's great
0: yeah
4: um, I would say personally from the best part of living in Scottsdale Arizona is that my family's all out there yeah. and it's not just my central it's you know my mom's out there my brothers and my sister are out there um, my in-laws are out there, you know, my, my you know father-in-law brother in law sister- in-laws. I think probably the great thing is that my kids are growing up around their family yeah. and that they have that extended family. Love that. Um, so that with family and that with the weather. Um, <laughs> the, we, the, the snow doesn't come to us, no. I get to drive to the, to snow. the snow yeah, yeah, yeah. so um, and, and great Mexican food. Absolutely. You know, right,
0: yeah. I seek it out every time I'm down there. Of course, we uh, we are so envious of your weather in the winter. Mm. Not always so envious of your weather in the summer, though, when it's 115 degrees and they've got to shut down the airport because the planes can't land. And, no, you just got uh, to learn,
4: just gotta gotta learn to live with it. got to learn to live with it. It's like a snowstorm, except the difference is you can look outside for the snowstorm and go, yeah, I'm not going outside. I look outside with the summer and I go, oh, what a beautiful day. And I walk out and I'm like, my, all the water in my body just shrivels. just like on. a wall. I'm like, I gotta go in the pool, <laughs> you That's know? Right. So. That's right, sure.
0: Well, Eric, great to see you again, my friend. We'll spend more time this weekend, but uh, awesome. Thanks for doing Awesome. This Thanks for having it. me on again. Cheers. Appreciate it.